Now, if you could turn to Mark's Gospel, if you've got a Bible to hand, either open it up or switch it on, uh, to Mark chapter 1. For most of us, that will be on our, our phones, I'm sure. I've got to love the fact that it's been 2,000 years and we're, we're back to scrolling our way through Scripture again. <laughs> so Mark chapter 1, uh, let me read from verse 1 uh, down to verse 11. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Friends, this is God's word to us tonight. Now, when I catch up with friends, one of the the first questions I generally ask them is, what have you read recently? Have you read anything good recently? Any good book recommendations? That's because I want to appear vaguely learned and intellectually curious. Uh, And then when we've we've dealt with that, I then ask the question I really want to ask, which is, what have you watched recently? Any good box sets? Any good binge-watching recommendations? And so it was that uh, just a few months ago, and rather late to this particular party, I started to watch Broadchurch. Any Broadchurch fans? I know it was a while ago, but I'm, you know, better late than never. Uh, In fact, it was an American friend who put it on to me, and he he confessed to me he had to watch it with the subtitles. Uh, He couldn't cope with the accents, bless him. Uh, So I got into Broadchurch, and one of the things I... I found frustrating about Broadchurch, but you will think is the good thing about it, is that you don't know who did it until the end. And admittedly, when you do find out, it's it's kind of gripping and shocking and amazing, and uh, you then want to rewatch the whole thing armed with that knowledge now and, and kind of see the hints leading up to it. I prefer the kind of crime shows where you know from the beginning who did it. The only one I can think of that did that was was Columbo. Uh, you would find out at the start who did it. And the great thing is, for the rest of the show, you know you're just waiting for him to catch up with what you already know. And the great thing about that is you can take a nap, you can go and make a cup of coffee. Uh, You don't miss anything. Uh, With Broadchurch, you actually have to pay attention and uh, kind of see it all happening and try and piece it all together. And so this is one of the reasons I like Mark's gospel. Mark tells you 
the key concluding insight right at the beginning. Uh, He doesn't want us kind of scratching our heads through the course of the gospel. There's nothing surreptitious going on. Unlike the characters in the gospel, we know from the very beginning the message of it. We know the point of it. We know who did it. Because Mark begins by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, There are other reasons to like Mark, depending on your your preferences on these things. Mark is the shortest. For some people, that's, that's a good start. If we're looking for something to read in the Bible and we're a bit intimidated, Mark is the shortest gospel. It's also very fast paced. Mark is constantly rushing us on to the next thing that happened. And so it tends to be quite action oriented rather than teaching oriented. It reads a bit like a screenplay. And so many people find it easier to read for that very reason. Uh, Mark is thought to be the earliest of the gospel accounts to have been written. We uh, know that Mark was a close associate of of Peter, one of the key disciples. Uh, We see that in in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter passes on Mark's greetings. Mark's kicking around somewhere and Peter is saying to his readers, hey, Mark says hi. Mark's around, he sends his greetings. But we also have the witness of of an early Christian writer called Papias, who said that Mark was Peter's kind of secretary and translator. And therefore, it is, it is very, very likely that Mark had Peter as his main source for this gospel. Uh, Mark mentions Peter way more than the other gospels do. And Peter is, is present in virtually every scene in Mark's gospel. And yet, Peter doesn't look good in Mark's gospel. Which brings us to the other reason to like Mark. It it is so honest. Peter looks like an idiot for most of Mark's gospel. In fact, all of the disciples do. They often misunderstand Jesus. They let him down. They deny him. They betray him. All of them abandon him. Uh, There is nothing remotely heroic. This This is not Avengers Assemble. All the kind of key heroic disciples, it's... It's more like a carry-on movie. It's a farce. None of these disciples were strong. All of them were weak. And so if you are conscious this evening that you are a bit of a mess, if you're conscious this evening that actually you're a lousy Christian, you are Jesus sort of person, But also because the the main characters of Mark don't come off well, also it means Mark's gospel has the ring of truth. It's it's not contrived. It's not the sort of narrative someone would have made up. It's too counterintuitive. C.S. Lewis said that one of the reasons he believed in Christianity was it's, it's a religion you never would have guessed. It's not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. And Mark shows us that. It goes against all of our intuitions and instincts. So it is such a a privilege for for me to be here with you this this week, opening up Mark and thinking about Jesus. So what we're going to do this evening is is look at the kind of the title verse and then briefly at the first two scenes of Mark's gospel. 
So firstly, the, the title verse is verse 1. We, we have in our, our Bibles, the Gospel according to Mark, we've added that title. That Mark didn't put that in himself. I don't think he would be particularly impressed. This is not Mark's Gospel. This is Jesus' Gospel that Mark has recorded for us. And so he puts his cards right on the table. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about him. So let's look at what Mark is claiming. Uh, he is claiming this is the Gospel. And as I'm sure... Many of us will know gospel means good news. Uh, When Mark was writing this down, gospel wasn't a Christian word. Uh, It was a a word used when there was some some headline news. Something fantastic has happened and is announced. Maybe the the birth of a great ruler or some massive victory in, in battle for the empire. And so Mark is saying that his book is the announcement of something even more monumental than that. And so right off the bat, we see Christianity is not advice. It's not a program. It's not ten rules for life. It's not techniques. It's not Jesus breathing new energy into our existing spiritual efforts. It is a message of something that has taken place. It is news. Uh, So much so that this is the gospel, this is the announcement, the good news, the the news to beat all news. So much so that the word gospel has now been almost entirely hijacked by Christianity. Uh, We will never hear anything more momentous than what Mark is going to share with us. And even by the time of of Mark's writing this, this news has reached all over the known world. So monumental it is. So it is the gospel. It is the gospel about Jesus. Mark is not trying to impart information. He's not trying to share data. He's trying to introduce a person. And my friends, there's there's a lesson there for us. When we think about sharing the faith, when we think about evangelism, we, we need to be talking about Jesus. Okay, defending the church is not evangelism. Making the case for Christian ethics is not evangelism. Telling people about Jesus is evangelism. And I say that to myself as as much as to anybody else because for some reason I find it easier to talk about the church than I do to talk about Jesus. But this is not the beginning of the gospel about the people of God and what we get up to. It is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. The Christ. The anointed one. this, This royal figure God has sent. It'll be halfway through the gospel before Peter is the first person to twig that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He is the man of God. He is God's person. It'll be the end of the gospel with the Roman centurion of all people who first sees this. And Mark has written this so that we can come to the same conclusion, that we will look at this man from Nazareth 
and say, this is the Christ. This is the one through whom God is going to mend a broken world. This is the Son of God. And notice too, Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel. That's a bit odd. Okay, Mark could have just said, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Instead he says, this is the beginning of the gospel. And I don't think Mark is being kind of a bit naff and saying, this is the start of the book that I am writing here in these words to you now. Beginning is a loaded word. That the Bible began with a big beginning. That the work of God in making his world. And now there is a new work of God that is being unfolding, unfolded for us. And Mark is saying, this is how it all began. And so Mark is showing us immediately that this is where it all came from. Uh, there's a, a really great scholar called Larry Hurtado, uh, who recently wrote a, a short book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become Christian in the First Three Centuries? Because the, the fact is that it gave you no social advantage. Quite the opposite. Uh, during the time Mark was written in the years following, it was not easy to be a Christian, and yet people kept becoming Christians. Why are people becoming Christians in Yemen? Or in the secular West, when we're meant to be getting with the program and becoming more secular and less religious, why is the church growing? I read an article just this morning, someone sent me about that the growth of evangelical Christianity in, South, in, in the South, in Ireland. Ireland's getting more secular, yes. Bible-believing Christianity is growing. Why? Well, Mark is showing us you can only make sense of why Christianity is enduring if you understand how it began. Uh, Richard Dawkins famously said that religion is a virus, in which case Christianity is, is arguably the most virulent virus there is. So many people today are thinking, why is it not going away? Why have we not grown out of Christianity? Uh, the number of people becoming Christian every day is estimated to be 170,000. Uh, the number of churches starting each week is, is estimated to be 3,500. And Mark says, this is how it began. This is why all that stuff is happening. This is the beginning of it all. But there's a, another reason we need to know this beginning. It may well be that some of us are here this evening, and if we're honest, we know that we don't love Jesus as much as we used to. Maybe that's why you're here. You used to love reading the Bible way more than you do now. It felt natural and instinctive to pray in a way that it doesn't seem that way now. Some of us are here because we know we need something to rekindle our zeal for the Lord. And so Mark invites all of us, well, let's, let's trace back to how it all began. 
let's go back to the beginning and see Jesus afresh. So that said, let's look at these first two scenes that Mark gives us in his account. Uh, The first is in verses 2 to 8, and we have the the promise of the king. And then in verses 9 to 13, we have the arrival of the king. So after all that build-up, what happens next seems a bit strange. We've had this great sense of anticipation. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And now we get Isaiah the prophet. Not quite what we were expecting. Um, Unlike, uh, sorry, excuse my, my microphone. Unlike Matthew and Luke... Mark has not taken us to those extraordinary events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Unlike John, Mark hasn't peeked behind the curtains of eternity to see how Jesus has always been with the Father. Instead, Mark starts us off in the desert. So verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's a strange place to begin, and yet here we are. Uh, Verse 3, we have the voice in the wilderness. Verse 4, John is baptizing in the wilderness. Verse 12, Jesus is sent into the wilderness. Now, some of us might be thinking, "That, that actually sounds quite nice. We think of somewhere that's, that's wild and unspoilt, somewhere we can get away from the, the pollution and the crowds and the phones and the busyness and the pressure. But in Mark's day, wilderness meant something very different. Um, I was just reading a, a, a book over the weekend about a, a politician, and the book described the, the kind of period before this politician became well-known, when they were languishing in obscurity and things just hadn't come together yet. And it just referred to this period as as his wilderness years. And we get a sense of what Mark means by wilderness. The wilderness is where God's people in the Old Testament had spent so much time. Very early in their history, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Later in their history, they had a very similar experience. God sent them out once more into the wilderness. And they were aware that those surroundings were a picture of their spiritual life. They were barren and lifeless. And yet God had promised throughout the Old Testament to end the wilderness years for his people. That that barrenness, that remoteness would come to an end. That God would pour out the water of his Holy Spirit in the wilderness. That he himself would come and lead them out. And it's that promise that lies behind these quotations in verses 2 and 3. Two quotations from the Old Testament. The the first and the the last of the the prophets, Isaiah and Malachi in our our Bibles, expressing this hope, God's going to come. God himself is going to come. He's not going to staff it out. God is going to turn up and lead his people back. And part of this is that he's going to send a messenger first, A voice in the desert. Someone crying in the wilderness. What a wonderful promise, but it's been 400 years of waiting. 
until verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. The messenger has come. John starts to speak. Uh, Notice what he does. He's baptizing in the wilderness, this place of barrenness. And what is John doing? He's He's either putting people in water or putting water on people, whichever way around it would have happened. And the response is huge. Uh, We're told in verse 5 that the whole country of Judea, all of Jerusalem is turning up. This is not a small deal. Uh, To go to the River Jordan wasn't just like, oh, let's just just pop down to the river for for a couple of hours this afternoon. That was a difficult journey. You had to make your way out way into the desert. And yet everyone is doing this. This is a a renewal movement of national proportions. And notice what John is saying. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. What is he doing with all these hundreds of people other than making them wet? Is he's calling them to repent. That is to say, he's, he's calling them to turn around. That's what repentance means. To I used to say it's doing a, a 360 degree turn, and then someone pointed out that that means you end up facing the direction you were in to start with. It's doing a 180 degree turn. I had to do this recently. I was walking down the high street in my hometown, and I was running an errand. My mind went into screensaver mode, and I suddenly realized I'd walked right past the shop I needed to go into. I thought, oh, Rats, I've just walked past it. And I thought, ah, I can't just turn around on the pavement. People will think I'm weird. I, I either have to go into another shop, pretend to look at something for a moment, then exit in the other direction, or I cross the road, go back on the other side, then cross again and go into the shop. It's... It's exhausting being English, by the way. You have no idea. (laughs) But either way, I had to repent. That's what I was doing. I was repenting. And that is John's message, that the reason he's dragging them out there into the wilderness is to say to them, listen, this is where you are spiritually. Far from God, needing to turn back to him spiritually parched, desperate for the water of God's spiritual reality. Then Mark does something really weird in verse 6. Nowhere else does Mark describe people's clothing. Every time a character appears, Mark doesn't give us a quick summary of their wardrobe. And uh, Mary is wearing the latest outfit by uh, so-and-so this year, a good season for that one. But all of a sudden we're told John is clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. We're given his diet as well. Well, the reason is Mark is showing us that there's a lot that's Elijah-y about John the Baptist. 
In fact, John is calling on the people of God to do the very same thing Elijah called on them to do, to come back to God. He's doing it in the very place where Elijah was famously taken up into heaven. He's wearing the very same clothes we're told in two kings that Elijah used to wear. And that is significant because in Malachi, in that quotation, if you read on a bit in Malachi, God had promised to send an Elijah before he himself came. The Old Testament ends with this promise of, I'm going to turn up and there's an Elijah's going to come right before me. And so if there's someone now in the wilderness who's very Elijah-y, that means God is now about to come. Which is what John says. Verse 7, he preached saying, listen, after me, and remember, John is a big deal at this point. This is a massive renewal movement. And yet John says, listen, it's, it's not me. There's, there's, I'm just the forerunner. Someone else is, is coming down the road behind me. They're the one who matters. So John says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. John's preaching moved hundreds and hundreds of people. Yet someone even mightier is going to come. What is that going to look like? John says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and and untie his sandal. Again, this is the most influential spiritual leader that that the people of Israel have seen for for centuries. And he's saying, listen, the guy who's coming, I'm not even going to touch his foot. That's how unworthy I am and how worthy he is. And then in verse 8, he says, listen, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John is saying, listen, I can give you the picture of water being poured out in the wilderness. He can give you the reality. John is saying, I can wash your skin. He can wash your heart. John is saying, I can make you wet. He can make you new. And so the time finally comes in verse 9. God is coming to bring people back to himself. And again, that is fantastic news for any of us who know we need God to stir in our hearts again. Fantastic news for those of us who know we need God. We've lost our sense of spiritual reality. And John is saying, listen, the next guy after me to show up is going to be the Lord, and he's coming for you. And so we have this uh, next scene, uh, verses 9 to 11, the arrival of the king. Now notice what's going on. God is promised. That's the point of those Old Testament verses. You get the messenger, you get the elijah person, then God shows up. God is promised, and in verse 9, Jesus of Nazareth arrives. You get the implication. God has come in the person of his son. 
And again, it's a bit odd. We've had again all this build-up and Jesus finally turns up and we don't hear him, we just see him. We don't hear him for a few more verses. He just walks up. So verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. All the other people have come from Judea and Jerusalem in the south. Jesus now comes down from the north and, and slips into this crowd and presents himself along with everybody else for baptism. Now again, think about that. Everyone else is coming for a baptism of what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, a baptism that said, I know I'm wrong with God. I know I need forgiveness from God. And yet God himself turns up for that baptism. The one who has no sin comes to receive a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we're reminded of another prophecy in Isaiah of one who would be numbered among the transgressors. As Jesus of Nazareth turns up, the first thing he does is very little fanfare, very little fuss. The very first thing he does is he identifies with sinners. When Jesus comes to receive this baptism, He's, he's coming to stand with us. He's coming to be our champion. By receiving the baptism that we need to receive, Jesus is putting on our team strip. He's putting on our jersey. He's saying, I'm with the sinners. He's come to be our champion. And so what we then see Jesus doing in the rest of the first few chapters of Mark's Gospel, as he goes after sin and evil and death and sickness, is we see our champion going after the enemies that we are powerless to confront. He is doing that as the one who has stood with us. He's our champion. And that's why his baptism turns out a bit differently to the others. How many hundred have been baptised by this point, we don't know. But I can bet you that this doesn't happen with any of the other ones. So verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, many of Mark's gospel, uh, Mark's readers will have, will have known their Old Testaments much better than you and I do. And as they're reading those words, it will be ringing Old Testament bells. Heaven is being torn open. And some of them would have been thinking, Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and be with us. A powerful longing for God not to be remote, not to be stuck up in heaven, but to come to us, to be known by us. And yet at the baptism of Jesus, heaven is torn open. The Spirit comes down. God had 
promised to put his spirit on his servant. His spirit on the one that he would send. And then we have the voice of the Father in verse 11. Again, the voice that didn't sound for any of the other baptisms, but the voice now that says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That is not the voice given to a sinner. That is the voice that addresses the divine Son. And yet, as we see the baptism of Jesus, we are given a trailer of what he came to do. I love going to the the cinema. It's one of my favorite things to do on a day off. I love every part of the experience. I love taking out a mortgage and going to the pick and mix. I love the adverts. I play the advert game with whoever I'm with. You, you pick a, a product each and see who gets the most adverts. Car, beer, or phones. Okay, and see who wins that bit. And then actually one of the bits I love the most is, is the movie trailers. Okay, that is a public service. Those people should be honoured. Someone has sat down and watched a movie so that you don't have to and told you all the key bits about that movie. That's a bit like when you were at school and and some textbook was assigned and you got it out of the school library and some saint has already gone through and underlined the bits that you need to look at. Well, Jesus' baptism is a trailer. It's a trailer for what he's come to do as as our champion. Because in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says to his disciples, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You see, Jesus spoke of another baptism he would undergo. He spoke of his death as a baptism. And this baptism points to all that he's going to achieve in that baptism. Because in that ultimate baptism, as Jesus hung on a cross... Heaven was ripped open for us. As Jesus underwent that baptism, the curtain was torn. God's presence was ripped open for us. At that ultimate baptism, the Spirit came down on all of those who would come to Jesus. Because of that baptism, the words that the Father speaks to Jesus here, he now speaks to those who are in Christ. If you name the name of Jesus, God the Father is saying to you, you are now my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Because we trust in Christ, we are clothed in him. The Father now sees us through the perfection of his Son. Because Jesus was willing to stand in our shoes as sinners, we can now stand in his shoes as God's Son. Friends, you are going to meet some people who are going to seem to you 
utterly intoxicating. You're going to meet some people who feel to you far more tangible, far more immediate, far more urgent than Jesus Christ does. But you will never meet anyone better. You will never meet anyone bigger. You will never meet anyone who is more beautiful than Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our Father, it sounds trite to say that we thank you for Jesus, but our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for the one who would come and stand on our soil, stand alongside us, stand with us, who would identify himself with people of such folly and weakness as us, who would put on our jersey and go in and fight for us as our champion. And Father, we praise you that because of what Jesus has done, heaven has been torn open. You've poured out your spirit on us and we stand under your approval that we now experience the love the eternal Son has reveled in for eternity. Father, we thank you for this good news. Our Father, we pray it would shape us, that it would define us, that it would stir us and drive us. And we pray... In Jesus' precious name. Amen.